Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Twitter accepts Elon Musk's $44 billion acquisition offer. Twitter has announced that it is accepting the offer to acquire the publicly traded company at $54.20 a share, valuing the social media platform at $44 billion. What does this mean for the social media platform? For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's a political activist, independent journalist, and podcaster, Nico House. As always, Nico, welcome back. Uh, I'm glad to be back, gentlemen. So in a press release, Musk repeated his refrain that free speech is key to Twitter's future, though most of his ideas for now to optimize or I'm sorry, for how to optimize the uh, social network, including adding new products, fighting spam and opening up its algorithms are things the company was already in the process of doing prior to his dramatic intervention. Your thoughts on this, Nico, especially Understanding, at least I understand that once the deal is approved, that Twitter will go from being a publicly traded company to being privately held. Well, this seems to be a pattern, right, that we're seeing amongst any company that Musk is involved in. This is the same thing that happened with SpaceX. Unless, of course, you decided you wanted to invest in Google to invest in SpaceX, then you're good. You're good to go there because Google uh, at least owns, at least at the time, I last said between 8 to 13 percent of SpaceX. And then Tesla privately traded after it was once an IPO. So now we're still seeing a Neuralink, same thing with the brain chips that Elon Musk was just writing about two days ago, like they saying he wants them to work a lot like smartwatches. And then what, what we're seeing right now in, in Twitter. What I am noticing is this pattern that people seem to be completely and totally unaware of. Everything Musk touches ends up being directly intertwined with the U.S. government. And everybody's celebrating like he's going to bring free speech back to the platform. That is laughable, considering he just said the other day on Twitter that Twitter's policies, you know, he said, you know, Twitter's policies are great if it is only the fringe 10% on the left or the 10% on the right who have issues with those policies. Who do people think that he's referring to as the fringe, considering what policy he's referring to, which is censorship? You know, I think, um, Nico, one of the things that happened is people are so desperate. They're hoping for something. You know, people are hoping for a change. And w one of the things, that, my immediate reaction was, you know, he's the richest man in the world. I'm skeptical. You know, now, don't get me wrong. I Anything is possible. Is it possible that there are factions in the ruling elite class that are that'll fight it out and maybe he'll make some? I don't know. But I've, I'm skeptical that the richest man in the world is going to act in a way that's going to make it easier for the average person to share information that goes against what the super rich people want. As I said, I don't know. Anything is possible. But what do you think about my skepticism? Well, by definition, you're absolutely right. One of the ways, say, if you wanted to influence that outside of Twitter as a shareholder, you are now losing the ability to do that just by them going private. You're not going to be able to just pull your stocks and put them in however you feel like it. If you think Twitter's going to do well, if you think Twitter's going to do badly. 
that's already problematic in and of itself, considering I think that we all consider Twitter to be at least uh, in name uh, a public forum, if you will. So if you have a situation, in my, in my uh, humble opinion, like what we saw where Trump was disallowed by the courts to block people while he was president because it is considered a public forum, then why then should you be able to make a public forum a privately traded company? That doesn't make any sense. And there's no, and, and this is once again, there, there is no history that shows me that Elon Musk is in it to, to, to help better the world. I mean, when he could create SpaceX, it was for space exploration. It seemed like he had this egalitarian, this altruistic idea of just making space more accessible. First thing he did was contract with the Pentagon to transfer weapons across the world in under an hour. That's the first thing he did. Okay, this is 2020 and everybody's like, that didn't happen. Then everybody's like, all the conservatives are like, oh man, well, at least he's a good billionaire, like the bad billionaires like Bill Gates. Oh, that's crazy because SpaceX is literally contracted and partnered with Microsoft, right? So we're gonna, so this is the guy that everybody is celebrating. Well, now mind you, this isn't just about the money that he gets from the stock because everything is, is intertwined, right? He is creating brain chips. He has been not, he's not been shy about doing so. So now he has access to the data that, I mean, the, probably the most influential data in all the world at this point, outside of maybe YouTube. So he knows how you're, of course, to some degree, they're going to, that's going to be able to, uh, free speech would be able to be, give better access and quantum analysis to that brain chip, but more so having more free speech will allow them to better figure out who to censor in the future because Elon Musk is very clear about who he works for. It is the U.S. government. That is the reason why he's the wealthiest man in the world. They get $2.44 billion to Elon Musk and Tesla over a, a year period between states and federal uh, grants. That's, I mean, like, the list goes on. That data is going to go to the government. And then when in five or six years, whenever people think that free speech is back, if, if it even does return, it's going to be even harder to get through because they're going to be able to anticipate you based off of every single thing you said since Elon Musk has taken over. Do you see any parallels here between Elon Musk with Twitter and his government contracts? And let's see, maybe let me see if I can pick an. Oh, how about Jeff Bezos and Amazon with his cloud computing contracts and his ties to the government? I mean, it's a, I see parallels there. I see parallels with Bill Gates and his ties to the government. I see parallel. I mean, the the parallels with uh with um Peter Thiel and his ties to DARPA and the government. I mean, how how is Musk supposed to pretend to be an independent actor when every single time he gets his hand in something, he comes in, does a hostile takeover, takes an IPO and makes a a privately traded company, and so we can't affect it from the outside, and then they end up contracting with the government. Which, by the way, is pretty interesting when you think about it, because logically speaking, whenever a company contracts with the government, that is what we that's a sure thing in stock market trading. You know that they're going to have money. I mean, that's what happened with Tesla. Even when it was a, not a, a profitable company, it was still somehow profitable because they were getting government subsidies, billions of them. So you, why would you make it a privately traded company? Because at the end of the day, the, the people that you're beholden to it's not the average person. It's that government and whoever those billionaires are that are influencing the government. That are on, that are on mm -hmm. the board. 
Uh, Alan McLeod has an interesting article in Mint Press, an, internet, an intellectual no-fly zone, online censorship of Ukraine dissent is becoming the new norm. He brings out that uh, earlier this month, Google AdSense sent a message to publishers uh, saying, due to the war in Ukraine, we will pause monetization of content that exploits, dismisses, or condones the war. In, uh, it includes but is not limited to claims that imply victims are responsible for their own strategy or similar instances of victim blaming, such as claims that Ukraine is committing genocide or deliberately ta- attacking its own citizens. The people in Donbass are citizens Ukraine. of Ukraine, and 16,000 of them were killed over the eight year, last eight years, and they're shelling them now. You can't make a claim of what's going on right now. At any rate, your thoughts on this. Uh, YouTube has new, um, uh, a new message out, same kind of thing. Your thoughts on this, this kind of stuff going on, Nico? I guess it's just weird that they felt like they needed to send a message about it. They've already been doing it. I don't know why. <laughs> we, we already knew that this is happening. They've been censoring on YouTube and of course on Twitter and Facebook, but you're absolutely, it's, it's interesting, right? They say we're going to uh, demonetize uh, and, and adjust the algorithms to basically shadow ban people who are provo- provoking the war or cheering it on. So what about Zelensky? Are we, are we shadow banning him? Cause I, I feel like almost nobody, <laughs> you know, from, from, from my vantage point, Putin has been talking about how he wants the war to stop. Every time we talk, it's Putin actually extending the olive, olive branch. It's Russia who wants the war to end because obviously, like you just talked about, people that, you know, maybe aren't Russian anymore, but have close ties to Russia are independent of the Ukraine that have been victims of West Ukraine and the Ukrainian government uh, and the neo-Nazis that are running it. Everybody wants this to end. I mean, let me be honest with you guys. I know that uh, wheat, we get a lot of our wheat from Russia, right? Yeah, I wanted to go get a McChicken the other day. That thing was two twenty-five, y'all. I want the war to end. I can't do this no more. <laughs> if that ain't gonna start a revolution, bro, I don't know what will. We gonna let two, two chick, McChicken become two twenty-five, and I'm not gonna say anything about it. We deserve everything we got coming to us. I promise you. Like this is a, this is becoming a problem for everybody. We're trying to end. Like if we speak out about this. We're trying to end this conflict. We're trying to speak into this is the ending of this conflict. But the problem is this conflict is somehow yielding the results NATO, for the most part, has been chasing after for decades, and they don't want to let it go until they get some type of absolution where they feel like they have come out on top. And it doesn't seem like right now, based off of everything we're seeing, that they're coming out on top based off the price of the ruble. It looks like Russia's coming out on top. So we'll see how that works out. I'm trying to tell you, man. <laughs> well, you you might need to switch your McChicken to a two-piece and a biscuit. That's another show. We'll do another show on that. Twitter deletes dozens of Russian accounts for, quote, undermining faith in NATO, end quote. A propaganda system is far more effective and dangerous when those inside are unaware of it and believe themselves to be free from influence. Now, Anybody that has any historical context and understanding of NATO would know that NATO went from being, at least as it was originally described, a defensive organization to being an offensive organization. Now, uh, so you take this undermining the faith in NATO. uh, Now you can't discuss the historic reality of what actually is going on in Ukraine and why, as in the Ukrainian government attacking the people in the Donbass who are, in fact, Ukrainian, uh, 
for since 2014, this is really clear and present danger in terms of free speech and not only free speech, but the 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 ability to convey historically supportable rationales for behavior. I mean, this is the road that we have been traveling down for years, right? Whenever they said uh, you couldn't tell the truth about Russiagate and you were being demonetized and censored, and then that kind of ramped up in 2020. Uh, whenever they said you couldn't, t- you couldn't even ask, not if the election was legitimate or not, but you couldn't even ask why we don't have automatic audits. Why can't we just audit everything to make sure the leg- elections are legitimate? It, it isn't only the presidential election that we're worried about here. Yeah, you're not even allowed to ask that without being banned or removed from YouTube. Heck, if you even talk about Epstein, you're actually banned or suspended for bullying Epstein now on YouTube. We're, we're getting into dangerous, dangerous territory here. I don't know if there is an end in sight. I do know that there are alternative platforms like Rockfin and Odyssey and some people like Rumble where we can, when we can um, talk about this type of stuff. But like this goes, this goes back because Twitter, I would consider Twitter to be the most influential platform as far as just straight social media. Um, maybe if you want to talk about video, like TikTok to some degree, and maybe even Instagram to some degree, but Twitter is where the, the celebrities have the conversations and the young people like to go have conversations to about any topic. And that's why I think it kind of surpassed Facebook to a large degree. And because of that, we have to really look at back to Elon Musk purchasing of Twitter. If he makes weapons, if he's make, you know, SpaceX is contract with the Pentagon to transport weapons, to do rocket launches and et cetera. Uh, who does the Pentagon give a lot of those weapons to NATO? I'll go ahead and finish that for everybody. Yeah. Okay. So is Elon Musk going to allow the, the world, whoever's on Twitter to undermine NATO? when that is literally part of his bag. That's how he makes his money, is NATO purchasing weapons in one form or another, or being, are those weapons being used in different assaults around the world? Probably not. So all of this really is a conflict of interest. Um, and then anytime, you know, whenever Elon Musk and SpaceX gets pissed off and try to contract with anybody else, they actually end up suing the government and winning, which is crazy. So it's, we're, it, it's a downward spiral. And I'm, I don't, this, this story combined with Elon Musk buying Twitter and just how much people don't know about both of those topics and how deep they go is what scares me. Nico House, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Hey, thank you. I appreciate you. All right. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. So the Washington Post reports that U.S. General says time is not on Ukraine's side. While President Putin is to meet U.N. chief and Biden says he's open to Ukraine becoming neutral in a peace deal. What does all of this really mean? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer. He's the author 
author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War. And from 91 to 98, he was a chief weapons inspector with the UN in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So a U.S. general says time is not on Ukraine's side, but Tony Blinken says that they're winning. Ukraine is winning and Russia is losing. And then Ukraine, uh, Biden says that he's open to Ukraine becoming neutral in a peace deal. But as I understand it, the Azov Brigade says they'll they'll hang uh, Zelensky from a tree. And if, if he negotiates with Russia and... Uh, from all that I've read, really, the United States has been standing in the way of a peace deal. And if you're for a peace deal, why do you continue to send more weapons into the country? Scott Ritter. Well, I mean, if you're looking for consistency from U.S. government on the issue of Ukraine, you're looking you're going to be waiting a long, long time. Oh, that's my fault. Um, OK. All right. I got it. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, first of all, there's this thing called reality. And I think the. Um, the general who said time is not on Ukraine's side is somebody who um, can look at a map and read a map and understands basic military math. And um, the the bottom line is the the Russians are winning and they're going to win and it will be an overwhelming victory. And um, there's literally nothing that can be done to change that equation. Um, there's no amount of equipment that you can send into Ukraine, right? You, you could literally uh, pour 100,000 tanks into Ukraine right now, and um, it wouldn't have any impact on the battlefield because there's just – it's no longer about tanks. It's about infrastructure. It's about logistics. It's, it's about, um, you know, manpower, training, um, you know, ammunition, fuel. Uh, and, and so this is – what what's happening right now with all these weapons, these heavy weapons going in, is murder. It's organized murder on the part of NATO. Uh, they're condemning um, hundreds, if not thousands, of Ukrainian um, soldiers to death. Any Ukrainian who touches this equipment that's being sent in will die in battle. That's a one hundred percent guarantee. And there, the the likelihood that any of this equipment is actually used in anger against Russia is close to zero. Um, so th there, there, this will have zero impact on the battlefield. This is purely for uh, political purposes. Um, you know, the, the, the hope on the part of people like um, Lloyd Austin and General Miley is that somehow this equipment can equate into dead Russians or destroyed Russian equipment. It's not. The Russians have taken over the battlefield, literally. Everything that's being done on the battlefield right now is being done at a time and place of Russia's choosing. They've slowed things down. They're going, you know, in, in a very deliberate fashion where they're bringing every single advantage they have to bear on the battlefield. Ukrainians have no momentum, no initiative. They're running for their lives. They're hiding. They're dying. That's it. That's all that's happening right now. There's no brave Ukrainian defense. There's no, you know, gallant Ukrainian counterattack. They're literally on the ground begging not to be killed because if they move, they die. If they stay in place, they die. Um, that's it. That's all that's happening. The Russians are not going to be taking excessive casualties from this 
point on. They've slowed this thing down. They're bringing their artillery, their firepower, everything to bear. The Ukrainians literally have no option but to die. They can surrender. Um, if otherwise, they're going to die. And anybody they bring to the front line will die as well. The casualties are out of this world in terms of what the Ukrainians are losing compared to what the Russians are losing. The Russians, uh, the, the, the casualty has dropped, the, you know, their casualties have dropped to close to zero as they can get because they're taking no risks, none whatsoever. And uh, as the news is, they're, they're capturing villages, they're capturing territory. This is going along just fine. Um, and, you know, by, I think this is why Biden says, oh, maybe we might want to uh, <laughs> negotiate a surrender here. Because, But notice he's saying that, and he's out of sync with Blinken and Austin, whom he just sent to Kiev. You know, so there was a national security meeting, the Security Council meeting, before Blinken and Austin went to Kiev, where they said, talk, talk tough, let's do perception management, which is what Biden's good at, telling lies to create perception. Uh, and in the meantime, in just a span of a few days, the map has changed. And Biden's looking at the map and going, oh, my God, the culminating point is being reached. Uh, the Russians are synchronizing everything. And the Ukrainians are literally about to disappear. And when that happens, it's, it, 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 it's just a fundamentally different game at that point in time. Right now, the Russians are only talking about moving from Crimea to Transnistria and seizing Odessa and all the southern uh, belt, the tier. Um, in a couple days, the Russians will have accomplished that. And from a negotiating standpoint, um, I will tell you right now, you will never get the Russians to give up a piece of captured territory from this point on. If you can stop the war now, you might be able, might be able to get the Russians to say, okay, we won't advance any further. But uh, the, the Russians will not give up a single inch of territory where there are Russian speakers and ethnic Russians in a majority. You know, we hear a lot of, um, you know, big talk, Chris Coons, oh, we've got to send in troops. We hear people every so often, some retired general or whoever says we need to send in troops. I read an article um, in The Independent yesterday, a general by the last name of Barons who was talking to parliament in uh, uh, their defense committee. And they said, well, could we go up against the Russians? And he said, well, let's just say we were to send our military to protect Latvia. They said, yeah, he said, the Russian Air Force would wipe us out in a week. He said, we are not, NATO is not in a, he said what you've been saying, NATO is not in a position militarily to confront Russia. And I've been saying, you don't want to confront Russia on their border. Their military has been building for years to protect within 500 to 1,000 miles of their border. And if you get in that 500 to 1,000 miles of their border, they're going to turn you to mincemeat. So all of the talk about sending troops every week or two that we hear from some loud mouth. The reality is, Scott, I don't think they have the capacity, that NATO has the capacity to do it, and I think they know it. Scott. No, I, look, the generals aren't stupid. Um, and you you have some, um, yeah, in Poland, I believe, you have some military professionals who allow uh, patriotism to um, uh, flex harder than their muscles. And uh, you might have that in some of the Baltic states when it comes to defense. But the second you ask Poland to, you know, whether or not they can move into Ukraine and carrying out an offensive operation against Russia, even they admit they have zero capability of doing this. The Russians, 
even though right now they're they're behaving in a very deliberate but lethal fashion on the battlefield, people need to understand this. It's still only a half flex. And what I mean by that is, and, you know, look, Russia just started taking out train bridges. This is something that's normally done on day one. On day one, everything drops. Nothing moves. The Russians have been allowing NATO and Ukraine to think they have a flow of logistics from the, the, the Ukrainian border with Poland and Romania to the front line because they've been artificially propped up because Russia let the trains run on time. The trains are no longer running. They will never run again, not in, not in years, because Russia is not only is dropping every bridge, they're blowing up every station. Nothing will move. The highways are going to be decimated next. And the longer this war goes on, Russia is just going to up the ante. And notice the threat they gave to the British, because the idiot British Minister of Defense said... If the Ukrainians use some of the weapons that we've given them to attack Russia in Russia, that's okay. And the Russians said, we know where your SAS are. They're in Kiev. And we will kill them all. What they really said is we'll fire a missile into the targets that we've avoided hitting right now just because we've been nice guys. And we know your people are there and it won't bother us that they die. So the Russians are about headed up to here playing games with NATO the Brits, the Americans. They have taken such a soft approach, and this has created a a misperception in the West of Russian weakness. The Russians aren't weak. They're not perfect. We saw that in the first two weeks. But they aren't weak. They've learned a lot. They've adapted, and they've slowed things down. There will never again be a Ukrainian military victory of any importance on the battlefield. Never again. The Russians are controlling the pace of this battle so closely that the Ukrainians will never be given the opportunity to fight a set-piece battle again. All they're going to be given the opportunity to do is die, and the Russians are slaughtering them by the thousands every single day. That's not being told in the West, but that general knows. Biden knows. Two things. You said the Russians won't give up an inch of land that has been captured where Russian speakers are the the dominant population. Does that mean that Russia will absorb those regions into Russia or is the plan, as you understand it, for those to be autonomous protected regions? And the second question is, you said the culminating point is being reached. What is that point? Well, the first thing is, um, I, I think that right now there's some talk about creating a, um, a, a greater Crimea um, federated state. So basically from the Crimea Peninsula, the land bridge up to uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, and whatever land bridge they create to connect with uh, the Transnistria, um, this will become a new Russian state. Um, that's just the way it's going to be. The culminating point is when, when your firepower, basically when the enemy ceases to be able to mount any resistance, when, the, when your firepower superiority, when your maneuver capability, when your logistics and everything just totally swamps the enemy, um, then it, it, you know, it's like a boxer putting his hands up to block his face. and You just keep pounding his arms, pounding his arms, pounding his arms, and when the hands drop, 
that's the culminating point because now you've got nothing to defend and Tyson's just going to rip into you. And now you need the referee to step in and call the fight. Except there ain't no referee. And at that point, let's be honest, very shortly, if they wanted to charge right across the middle of um, Ukraine towards Lviv and take Western Ukraine, there ain't nothing but wheat fields out there to stop them because there's no, there would be no military presence or no effective military defense. Am I wrong? You're, you're not wrong. The, 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 you're not wrong. The question is, is, is that necessary from the Russian perspective? Um, yeah. I, I mean, do they really want to take that next step? Because now we are talking about a new phase of fighting and, you know, and, 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 you know, escalation, more casualties. I think Russia is going to accomplish pretty much everything at once right now with minimal casualties, minimal loss um, to take it to the next level. That's a political decision that the leaders have to make. And wouldn't that also, I think this is what you're saying, change the objective of the operation? Because we've always been told taking over the country is not has never been the objective. Right. And that's the more really right. the anti-Russian area. Right. So what do you want to do? Hold that prop, hold that indefinitely, Scott? No, you're 100 percent. I don't think they want to occupy it. I think they want a, an unconditional surrender. And I think they achieved that by absolutely devastating, annihilating the the, the Ukrainian military and taking uh, the Russian-speaking uh, portions under their control. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times has a piece entitled, South Korea Emerges as Quad Alternative to India. Seoul poised to play a bigger role in the U.S.-led regional security policy and arms exports under President-elect Yoon. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No, as always, KJ, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So this is coming out of Asia Times. I'm going to read this paragraph. It's a bit long, but I think it's it's, it's good framing for the conversation. Outgoing President Moon Jae-in's chief foreign policy focus, if not obsession, has been his largely ineffectual engagement with North Korea. But the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the election of a new conservative leadership in Seoul could reset South Korea's place in the broader Indo-Pacific geopolitical landscape. One-on-one, I'm sorry, on one hand, India's commitment to maintaining robust ties with Russia has driven a wedge within the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue Grouping, better known as the Quad, which brings the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India under one China-focused security umbrella. Incoming South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol has declared his willingness to positively review joining an expanded quad just as Korea becomes a regular guest in expanded G7 gatherings. With that being said, KJ No, how significant is what appears to be or is it actually a shift away from India towards 
South Korea? You know, I, I think it's quite significant. As we have said before on this show, you know, India was supposed to be the bulwark um, along that uh, western edge of China in this encirclement of China, this containment that, you know, we now, now refer to as the Asia pivot. But it turned out that India was the, you know, the spoiler. It was uh, the dog that wouldn't hunt. It was, you know, the three-legged dog because it refused to go along with U.S. Uh, sanctions uh, because India has always been a close ally of Russia. And so now there has been this uh, pivot uh, to South Korea. And, you know, Yoon has said that he would join the Quad if asked. Well, you know, that's like, that's like an alcohol, alcoholic saying he will positively consider drinking if offered a drink. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a joke. Um, Seoul offered U.S. foreign policy on a silver platter back to Washington uh, as a condition, I see, as a condition of getting elected. If you look at uh, foreign affairs, you know, the magazine of the Council for Foreign Relations, on February 8th, Yoon Seok-yeol wrote down everything that was on Washington's wish list, on Washington's Christmas list, and offered it to Washington, you know. And so this includes the FAD, the GSOMIA, the uh, trilateral alliance with Japan, um, uh, and, and the Quad. So this has been in the works for a while. And I absolutely think that, you know, as India shows itself to be more and more uh, uh, of an unreliable partner for the United States, the money, the political pressure, and the military pivot will increase in Northeast Asia with Japan and Korea. And I think the way I would look at it is like this. It's like the guy saying, someone in, saying, you know, I asked the prettiest girl in school to go to the prom, and she said no, so I'm going to take my sister. That's the way it looks to me because I, I don't personally see South Korea as a country that has legitimate agency when it comes to foreign policy in that the United States literally in times of war controls the army of South Korea. They already own South Korea. If you want to call it a quad or saying that they're being – that the U.S. already – this is this is their property, I mean, in reality. So to say, well, we'll go to South Korea, India, a gigantic country with – you know world-class status and a billion and a half people and all the things that they have, they said no, and we really needed them. But India didn't really just say no. India said no, and additionally, India said, oh, and by the way, we're going to act in an independent manner against what you want, and we're going to do business with Russia in rubles and rupees to benefit ourselves. So India, to me, did more than just left the quad, per se. They reversed course and recognized the imperialist nature of having an alliance with the U.S. and move their alliance, in my opinion, to Eurasia. Your thoughts? Um, I think that's possible. We'll have to see how it plays out. You know, Modi seems to be straddling the fence and the U.S. is trying hard not to alienate him completely because if that happened, then that's exactly as you point out. It would, you know, signal, you know, the, the, the ultimate shift. But uh, your, your point is well taken. India traditionally has been part of the non-aligned movement until more recently, whereas South Korea has always been a U.S. client state. It was created 
South Korea was created by the United States, and the first president, Tsing Manri, was a U.S. puppet. Park Chung-hee was a U.S. puppet, and an obstreperous one, but still a puppet. Uh, his daughter, the president, Park Geun-hye, was also a puppet. And now Yoon uh, falls directly inside this lineage of U.S. Uh, quizzling uh, governments that are strongly, strongly allied with Japan. This is the tr- pro-Japanese, pro-colonial, pro-U.S. faction, which will do the subcontracting for U.S. foreign policy in that region. Is another analysis of this or interpretation of this really showing the weakness of the United States' hand uh, as it relates to India? Because a few years ago, the United States would have either would have just thrown down the hammer or thrown down the gauntlet on India. And, you know, you're going to suffer. Boy, are you going to pay. Well, now, because the United States, I think, really sees the weakness in its strategy, now has to be uh, has to allow for more compromise or deviation because it knows it can't just cut off its nose to spite its face. You're absolutely correct. You know, traditionally, the U.S. has had a complete, uh, you know, uh, vertical relation. It is the apex predator. Everybody underneath uh, does what it says. When the U.S. says jump, uh, the other nations below it say how high. This is the hub and spoke architecture. And now the U.S. speaks, Jake Sullivan speaks of a kind of a lattice work of alliances or a mini-lateralism. This is Kurt Campbell's term. And so, yes, it's clearly understood that the U.S. is no longer in that top-down position, uh, and it has to compromise. It has to stitch together in a, quote, latticework these alliances that it can maintain or press its advantage. Uh, However, South Korea is definitely, you know, um, a client state. It's definitely a vassal, and it will do whatever the U.S. tells it to do. Uh, There's another interesting article, um, uh, Ukraine and the Battle for Eurasia. It's in Asian Times, and it's from the heartland theory to the Cold War to the Belt and Road to the new Iron Curtain. And I think it's important to talk about the you know, Eurasia as the center of a new global order, to be quite honest. At any rate, your thought on, certainly we know it's Asia Times and they have their conservative bend, shall we say, but your thoughts on the the general philosophical issue uh, that's being discussed. Yes. I mean, what it's really talking about is the Oxford geographer, Halford Mackinder's theory of geopolitics and geostrategics. Halford Mackinder pointed out that, you know, for 400 years, uh, the, the the countries that had ruled the planet were seafaring powers. This is uh, the Colombian era, you know, Portugal, Spain, uh, uh, the United Kingdom, the U.S. They had all been, uh, you know, naval powers. And what uh, Mackinder said that, you know, the 20th century and the 21st century will be the, uh, you know, time, uh, the period of, uh, land-based powers, and he situated, you know, the center of land-based power in Eurasia, essentially Russia and China. And so this informs uh, every geostrategic calculation uh, for the United States since Brzezinski put forth uh, the grand chessboard, even before then. But essentially, the U.S. 
has to prevent, in order to maintain its global domination, it has to prevent the rise of a hegemon in Asia, that is China and Russia or China and Russia together. And so this has informed, uh, you know, what we're seeing, the war on Ukraine, uh, the encirclement of China, uh, all of these maneuvers have to do with uh, this issue. And, you know, Hillary Clinton named this in calling this the pivot to Asia. And South Korea, once again, has joined this, uh, you know, doctrine by saying that it will become a global pivotal state. Once again, notice the word pivot. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Brzezinski in this because I, I was going to ask you if you read the grand chessboard, is McKinder base is 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 uh, Brzezinski coming out of the lineage of McKinder in terms of lineage of thought, line of thought. So I, I think the answer uh, to that question would be would be yes. Uh, there's another Asia Times piece. Eurasian firms see Russia sanctions as big business chance as America and its allies move out of India, uh, move out. India, Turkey, and China are moving in. The, talk about how this really seems to be. Uh, the United States, I guess, anticipated with these sanctions that there would be this void or this vacuum, this economic vacuum created. But there has that 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 was very short lived because a number of companies are seeing the opportunity and countries are seeing the opportunity to step in and uh, fill this void, which makes basically the U.S. sanctions uh, moot. Yes, I think that's definitely the case. You know, it's a short term uh, period of, you know, stress for Russia, which is rapidly being filled up by other transactions, uh, different types of trade, and certainly different kinds of investment. I'll just add that South Korea is also one of the countries which is divesting from Russia. But once again, it will be filled by India, Turkey, and above all, Russia. The other thing to remember is, you know, Russia is is not a technological uh, backwater. I mean, it has some of the best uh, mathematics and engineering on the planet. Much of, uh, you know, the important work that we do in the 20th and 21st century, a lot of it was pioneered by Russian mathematicians and scientists. So this is incredibly short-sighted. And what it does is it accelerates the global division, the global uh, split of the world into different spheres. And once again, going back to McKinder, if I were to lay my bets on one region becoming ascendant, uh, I would have to, uh, you know, lay my bets on the Asian continent, the Eurasian. To your point quickly about Russian engineering and mathematics, I think people just tend to forget about uh, Russian satellite technology. Russia was the first uh, country into space and uh, hypersonic missile technology, which the United States is now scrambling to try to either uh, defend itself against uh, or or create its own. Uh, they've been on the cutting edge for a very long time. Absolutely. They've been on the cutting edge for a very long time. I mean, you could not do... Um you know, a Google search without uh, Markov chains, Andrei Markov, you know, uh, uh, you could not do, you know, space exploration without the Russian uh, pioneering, uh, you know, engineering. 
And so this is incredibly misguided. Uh, science um, develops through creating a global knowledge commons. When you cut this off and then when you try to partition the world into economic spheres, uh, this, is, this creates more blowback uh, than, than you can imagine. And the U.S. is extremely short-sighted. Uh, to do this. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and with my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. An enormous inspiration. More than 30 Starbucks locations have voted to unionize. This is according to Common Dreams. We are not going to let billionaire union busters stand in our way, said one Starbucks employee. What's going on with Starbucks, especially in light of the Amazon success? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the director of organizing for the Workers' Committee of the ALU, Brett Daniels. Brett, welcome to The Critical Hour. Hi, thank you for having me. So overcoming increasingly aggressive opposition from the company's management, workers at more than 30 Starbucks locations across the U.S. have now voted to unionize as the wave of organizing spurred by historic winds in Buffalo just four months ago continues to mount. Brett, some would say 30 Starbucks. You can have 30 Starbucks within a four-block radius of the, of the White House. Talk about the significance of these 30 Starbucks locations voting to unionize, again, especially in light of the Amazon success. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's a you know, significant change for worker, worker power and for the working class struggle. I think, uh, you know, as we've seen uh, with the recent surge in unionization at Starbucks and elsewhere, uh, workers are ready to take the driver's seat. They are ready to put the power back into their own hands. You know, I've heard the term, the, the sound, hard times are fighting times. And as we, um, as we look into, the, you know, into the, at least the, the, the near to midterm future, it looks like we're facing some difficult economic period. Do you see this as a time when, as an organizer, as a person who's working for uh, unions, um, will be able to have some success? Yeah, definitely. I mean... I think throughout time, uh, capitalist corporations have used uh, these union-busting tactics to interfere with workers' rights, yet workers are clearly saying enough is enough. So, again, when we look at 30 Starbucks locations across the country have voted to unionize, what does that mean as it relates to all of the other Starbucks across the country? Because, again, I, you know, as I said, you can find 30 Starbucks probably within a, a, a four-mile radius of the White House. So when those, four, when those 30 vote to unionize and then they engage in collective bargaining, do the benefits that come from that collective bargaining agreement, are they only related to the 30 Starbucks? Or does, do those uh, terms and conditions apply 
across the corporation. Yeah, I think uh, just like with uh, what we're seeing with Starbucks, as well as what is the potential with uh, Amazon, uh, that, you know, like like Rep Ocasio-Cortez said um, in uh, Sunday's rally, that uh, JFK was the first domino to fall. Um, so... We'd, we'd love to see that anywhere um, that workers want to organize. Let me ask you this. How long have you been working, um, you know, have you been working on unionization? What's your kind of background with unions? And, and, and you know, have you, how, how have you how have you seen things change over the course of your work? Yeah, um, I think that's a very interesting uh, point to bring up. So I actually started at an Amazon facility in Chandler, Arizona, on occupied Alotham land. In May 2020, after being inspired, uh, seeing Chris, Derek, Gerald, and Jordan, um, all four black organizers leading a walkout and, you know, saying, again, enough is enough. Um, so from, from there, I started uh, salting or organizing for a union um, in my own, you know, area in, in Arizona. And, uh you know, decided to take that here to New York as well. You mentioned p- potential benefits for Amazon, and I, in the open, asked about Amazon, the Amazon, referred to the Amazon success. Can you explain to the audience that, you know, what has happened now uh, with, with Chris Smalls and, and the success that he had with Amazon in New York? Where where are we now? And and I would still think there are miles to go before we sleep. Yeah. So uh, what we'd like to think of this is kind of like uh, putting our our first base down of many. Um, so this, you know, a, a lot of people looked at this this win as a historic win, and it, it sure is. Uh, you know, all power to the working class. Uh, but we're we're seeing that not only workers you know, across the city, across the state, across the country, but also the world. Workers are being inspired by these movements uh, to fight back and take power uh, back into their own hands in their workplace. Uh, we're, we're seeing over, you know, a hundred locations across the country and even more overseas of Amazon workers wanting to, to organize and unionize their own locals. Um, as well as other workers from other retail giants reaching out to us. One of the mistakes that uh, that a lot of us uh, make in programs like this is we think that the audience understands what we're talking about. When we talk about unionizing and we talk about collective bargaining, give three or four tangible examples of what this means for Starbucks, what this means for the working class at Amazon. What are the three or four top items on the list when you go to corporate and you negotiate? What are you negotiating? What are you fighting for? Yeah, so I think uh, typically, you know, with unions, you have a um, a widespread um set of values that that workers fight for uh typically you know first comes job security i know that uh in the unionizing efforts uh when i was back in arizona the big difference to note is before so we hadn't set up uh the the building blocks of amazon labor union yet 
And so we didn't have the protections of, of a union um, and the benefits that they provide. Uh, so in speaking with coworkers, in talking about the working conditions that we were experiencing and what we knew we'd want to change for the better, uh, we, we knew, uh, you know, workers were scared just for job security in itself as soon as they heard the word union. Um, they, they were out of the conversation because, uh, you know, it attacked their job security. Uh, but the fact that in unionizing, even before being certified and recognized as an official union, uh, we've already been able to provide that job security for so many of our coworkers. Um, so that's, you know, that's a huge one. Obviously, um, more time off, uh, actual sick time. Um, so, you know, we're only, only allotted so much and it's really, you know, not enough, uh, for, for workers. If, if they're sick, if there's an emergency that comes up, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, there, there's a lot of inhumane, uh, practices at these, at these corporations. Um, so of course, along with that, better working conditions, um, yeah, definitely, um, typical typical uh, job improvement in the workplace. What's the hardest part of organizing? Yeah, I would think that a lot of one thing would be hard. I'm just throwing this out there that a lot of workers, you know, people are desperate now. They've got a job. They got to pay their bills, families, rent, what have you. I would I would think it would be very difficult with the countries pushing with the companies pushing back and people, you know, afraid for their um, financial security, that it's difficult to bring people together. But but I may be wrong. What's the hardest part of organizing and getting people ready to vote for a union? Yeah, I'd say um, really uh, class consciousness and, and having workers realize their worth. Um, we have to remember that it's our labor that make, makes these places run. Um, so it's really the profit... Um, the wages that they're stealing from the workers uh, that, you know, the bosses are taking. So really taking that power and putting it back into the workers' hands um, is tremendous. Educating them, making them aware of not only their rights, because it's important to note that we have the right to organize for a union, um, you know, under the National Labor Relations Agreement. Each worker has the right to form, join, or organize for a union. Uh, so, so right off the bat, you know, in my second week as a rehire at JFK in Staten Island, um, I, I found myself already um, writing an unfair li- or filing an unfair labor practice charge against Amazon because they were not only uh, trying to stop us from organizing, uh, but as well as threatening to call the cops. We hear all the time that the things that unions are negotiating for are, are, are only going to raise costs. That, and then those, those increased costs are going to be passed on in terms of price to the consumer. Can, can, speak to that. Yeah, so to that I say that we've seen the cost of living continue to rise and rise and rise. My entire lifetime... Uh, you know, we've, we've seen it rise and my entire, uh, working life, the, the federal minimum wage has stayed the exact same. It hasn't changed at all. So I really, you know, want to 
combat this notion that, you know, we raise wages, the cost of living will go up because it's already going up. So to, to give an example and some context, I, you know, coming from Arizona, I'm only making $2 more an hour than what I was making in Arizona, yet it's three times the cost of living here. <laughs> so the math does not add up. Um, and so I think that seeing these increased unionization efforts, we're only going to see wages go up. And, you know, Garland, when you look at the net worth of Jeff Bezos, $178 billion, the net worth of Elon Musk, $265 billion. And you wonder why these guys, I don't know where Elon Musk is in this whole conversation, but we know where Jeff Bezos has been in this conversation. Uh, they don't want to pay <laughs> benefits and wages to the people that facilitated their making these mega billions. Yeah, and you know, Brett, one of the things that I think supports what we're what you're saying particularly is um, there was a recent report that corporate profits are the highest they've been in 30 years. So there's no argument that they can't afford to pay people and still make good profits. Brett, we got about a minute and a half. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd I'd also you know like to say um, that they've spent alone just on union busting the amount of money that these companies spend and it doesn't matter whether it's starbucks amazon what have you they could just be paying their workers more and taking care of the workers making better work uh, workplace conditions we thank you so much for your time we thank you for uh, for your work and we look forward to having you back yes it was a pleasure thank you so much for having me brett daniels we appreciate it folks you are listening to the critical hour on Radio Sputnik, I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Global Times reports, U.S. promises more military aid to Ukraine as political gesture, nothing significant to change battleground situation. The recent trip by U.S. Secretary of State Blinken and Defense Secretary Austin was the highest level American visit to Ukraine to the Ukraine's capital since the Russia-Ukraine conflict started in late February. But analysts said yesterday that the visit is just to show political support and may have a very limited impact on the situation in the battlefield. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea. He's a film director and podcaster, Regis Tremblay. Regis, welcome back. Well, thanks. So good to be with you, too. So Global Times continues. After a secrecy-shrouded visit to Kiev, Blinken said Russia is failing in its war aims and Ukraine is succeeding. This is according to CBS News. The visiting U.S. senior officials told Ukraine President Zelensky that the U.S. would provide more than $300 million in military financing and had approved a $165 million sale of ammunition. 
Secretary uh, Defense Secretary Austin said Zelensky's response to the aid was deep appreciation. He was he has the mindset that they want to win. He has the mindset that they want to help him win. However, analysts disagree with this. Help us out here, Regis, because we're hearing an awful lot uh, from Western media that Ukraine's winning, Russia's losing, and the United States is going to provide the military assistance to make the difference. Yeah, black is white, white is black, truth is, truth is lies. Um, you know, I saw the video of both of them, Blinken and Lloyd Austin, and I, I have to tell you, I have to restrain myself. All I can say is, I don't know who the audience was that these guys you know, had in mind, but it is 180 degrees opposite of what they said. Blinken was saying that the economy, the Russian economy is failing, is faltering. Well, the ruble is at something like 77 or 78 rubles per American dollar. It's as high as it's been in a long, long time. I live here. I go to the markets, I go to the grocery stores, I have friends throughout Russia. There is no economic collapse. In fact, the economy is strong and doing well in spite of the sanctions. Food prices have risen. So Blinken was freaking lying, unbelievable lying. And Lloyd Austin was saying that um, the military is failing. Oh my God, it's the exact opposite. The Russian military is actually crushing the Ukraine, what's left of the Ukrainian National Army. The Nazov, the Azov battalions, when they're in the di different cities that um, Russia has liberated, Russia is blowing up supply lines, blowing up railroad tracks, blowing up ammunition depots. Anything that is coming in from the West is being blown up. Russia has officially said, you keep sending these weapons, whether they come from um, European countries, they come from the UK or the United States, they are legitimate military targets and Russia is taking them out immediately. Uh, it's, it's inconceivable to me that anybody can believe what the United States, and it is the United States, is saying. It's completely the opposite. I tell people, whatever they say, it's exactly the opposite of what the reality is on the ground. Um, Regis, you know, we hear, you know, and it's obvious that the rhetoric is aimed at convincing American people to support policies that are not in their best interest, in my opinion. What are the big stories? You know, so we'll hear some make-believe story and that'll be, a, you know, a big, that'll be in the news cycle. And, you know, what is, in, in, uh, you're in Crimea right now. What do, what's the big story? What are the big news stories related to the, to the, to the crisis in Ukraine that, um, that people are, are talking about or are concerned with the most? A few people. Uh, are paying attention to what uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, one of the brightest foreign ministers ever, he is warning about the possibility of a nuclear war because of the escalation that the United States and the UK primarily are, are triggering. Um, now, the West is saying, oh, Russia is threatening to use uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, strategic nuclear weapons. Well, it, they're projecting on Russia because that's exactly what they're planning to do. And Russia knows and has intel on not only biological attacks that are being planned, but possibly also dirty weapons. And so 
this is in the news here. At least people are beginning to talk about it. And I'm grateful for that because I've been saying for a long time that we are on the brink. We are on the very brink of extinction as a species because of what the United States is doing uh, around the world, pulling out of all nuclear arms trees, all of them, except the new start, which basically is toothless. And so that's a huge story. The other story is that China, uh, while they're not a party to this conflict in the Ukraine, they are officially calling out the United States for war crimes, for interventions that are illegal, that go against the United the UN Charter and international law. And I see these two things as connected. The conflict in Ukraine, the struggle that Russia is facing against all of the collective West, and now China calling out the United States and the collective West for the war crimes that they've been committing in the last several decades. Back to you. It's interesting you mentioned uh, the United States basically blowing up these... Uh these munitions and 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 weapons before, uh, at, basically upon arrival, uh, Ukraine is reported railway hits U.S. war aims. Ops report last Thursday, the first destruction of bridges along Ukrainian railway routes in eastern Ukraine took place. These were important for Ukraine's war effort, especially for the resupplies flowing from west towards the eastern front. Talk about in in more detail exactly how all of this so-called armament that the United States is sending isn't making its way to the battlefield. And Regis, I got to say that if I saw this whole or if I saw a major part of the United States uh, involvement in this as being a money laundering operation for the military industrial complex, well, then to me, this is a wonderful scheme for the United States to claim involvement, but to actually not cross that Rubicon that would then result in a direct conflict between the United States and Russia. Well, I happen to believe that this is a direct conflict between the United States and Russia. The Russians know it. They have said repeatedly they cannot talk to Kiev because when they talk to Kiev, they really know that it's the United States that's doing the talking. And so it is well known that the United States has been training Ukrainian national uh, forces and Nazi battalions. It's very well known and documented. It's been going on for years. Um, It's very well known that there are American and European high-ranking advisors and I'm going to say commanders directing the military operations from the Ukraine side. Russia knows this, okay? It's, it's very clear to Russia what, what is going on. The United States has been after regime change and it's been articulated. Most recently, Joe Biden uh, Blinken has said it. Lloyd Austin has said it. They Lo- want to weaken Russia. Lloyd Austin said down, it yesterday. That's correct. And to take down Putin, rape and pillage, balkanize Russia, steal its resources. And that's what they've been after for decades and decades. That's what this is really, really all about. Now, in terms of the well, military... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me let me just jump in and, and say I, I want to be sure that I was very clear in, in my point. I agree with you a thousand percent. This, and, and to a great degree, what you are laying out is what we all know 
is in the minds and the hearts and is the motivation of American action. But there are certain things that the United States really can't do or else it'll be so blatant of an attack that it would result in a direct confrontation between the United States and Russia. And it was, it's the, so for example, a no-fly zone. People know you start a no-fly zone, we're going to be in a shooting in a nuclear war within three days. That's what I was really referring to in terms of crossing the Rubicon. Yeah. Um, I think the Russians... Uh, Certainly think that uh, the United States is very close to, as you say, crossing the Rubicon. Okay. They they understand. Go ahead. You don't know. I I agree with you. Go uh, ahead. You know, I I did want to ask you add one thing to to ask about it because I think we can't overlook the this other reality that Russia is part of the equation that the U.S. basically is feels that their unipolar moment is threatened when in fact it's not threatened. It has already passed. But they see that they must and this talk about weakening Russia really means they want to go after China. And so your thoughts on the U.S.'s plan to, you know, uh, well, how about this? How do the people in Russia view their relationship with China and view the support of China? Well, you know, you you don't hear a lot about it. And when you do hear it, there are, are many um, Russians, and I'd have to say those that are more um, politically astute or paying attention to the geopolitical issues, many of them don't trust China. But people be, are becoming more and more aware that this is uh, a conflict that involves China. Uh, people are beginning, some of my friends are beginning to realize that now it's Russia. If they take down Russia, China's next. The U.S. is all over the East China Sea, all over Taiwan, the Straits of Taiwan. And in my opinion, China is very close to doing what Russia had to do on February 24th. And I think, I think perhaps that's the Rubicon for the United States of America. If they trigger a conflict, direct conflict with China, and they're doing the same thing with Russia at the same time, um, well, the empire is over, that's for sure. And it's gonna come to bite them. Uh, the American economy is, is in shambles right now. I know $27 trillion in debt and pumping more money into the military industrial complex, sending millions and millions more in lethal aid to Ukraine at the expense of all of the very basic fundamental needs that the American people and American society needs to survive. We now read, for example, that that, uh, Germany is going to allow the transportation of some weaponry into Ukraine. Uh, What is, from the media that you're reading in Europe, uh, is the alliance between the United States and the EU related as it relates to this issue, is it getting stronger or are we starting to see greater tensions develop between the United States and the EU countries that are that are uh, being asked to support the United States position here? I think that's been obvious for some time now. Um, It really showed its colors with the uh, the ban on on Russian oil and gas. you know, right across the EU, they're saying, geez, we can't do this. Austria can't live without it. Greece can't live without Russian gas. We'll try to phase it out in the next two or three years. 
this is one of the fundamental issues that's showing the divide in in the EU amongst itself and between the United States of America. I think it's 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 a collapse. Not only it's a collapse of the collective West, the Anglo-European alliance is is on its way out. The only thing they have left is firepower. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Great. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure for us to have you. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Nicholas Maduro is re-elected as president of the PSUV, the party in the Venezuelan government, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, the PSUV, has ratified Nicolas Maduro as its president after he unanimously obtained the support of more than 2,000 party delegates from all over the territory. What does this mean for the political landscape of Venezuela? What does this mean for the U.S. intervention project in Venezuela? And, uh, oh, where is Juan Guaido? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He was a regional election observer last year for the Venezuelan elections, co-founder of North Florida's Hands Off Venezuela and president of the Hands Off Venezuela Club at the University of North Florida, Alex Suarez. As always, Alex, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Before we get into this discussion about President Maduro, there's another point that uh, I'd like for you to, to elaborate. Alex Saab has been recognized as a diplomat. Where was this vote taken and what does this mean? Sure. A couple of weeks ago, the National Assembly, which has a number of opposition members that no longer have the majority, but there's still a significant portion of the National Assembly in Venezuela, voted overwhelmingly. Uh, not only to recognize uh, Alex Saab as a, a diplomat of the Venezuelan people, uh, but also uh, to condemn um, he, him being held in the United States and demand his immediate release. So that's very significant that even the opposition in huge numbers had voted uh, to uh, recognize him and to condemn that. That is showing that the Venezuelan people more and more are recognizing the efforts of Alex Saab and how uh, they've been able to fight sanctions because of the route he established as a diplomat. I actually had met with some of the opposition parties in, in, in Venezuela, and this was, you know, a few years ago, and I remember them at that time saying they were getting a little fed up with the sanctions because they were suffering in the areas when their people were dealing with them, too. It seems to me that the sanctions are having such, have, been, are ta have been taking a toll on, you know, opposition and non-opposition included, and the opposition, I'm not going to say it's falling apart, but it sure doesn't seem to be as strongly in favor of the U.S. intervention as it was in the past. In fact, before you respond, Alex, let me just add to that, Garland, that we've been saying on this show for a very long time that the problem that the U.S. seems to not recognize about sanctions is that sanctions have a way of heightening a sense of nationalism 
within a country and that it allows the leader of the country to turn the issue into a them versus us kind of conversation. And so that seems to be what's happening here. Alex. Okay, well, I'll put it this way. In 2024, um, you know, uh, in all probability, I'm not going to be uh, voting Biden. I'll probably be voting third party. Uh, but let's say somewhere between now and 2024, um, I don't know, the Chinese uh, sanction us very severely and it affects our gas prices and it affects our, our food prices, et cetera. And then I see Biden going out of his way to try to find ways to fight those Chinese sanctions. I would probably, you know, even though I, I despise him, end up voting for him uh, just to defy the Chinese. You can use that same logic when it comes to people that could be moderate, not necessarily extremists from, from Guaido's party, uh, that are not Chavistas or socialists by any means, uh, but they end up in these elections voting for Maduro's party that they would not have otherwise if it wasn't for U.S. sanctions because they're aware of those sanctions and they're defying those sanctions by making that protest vote. Um, so it doesn't work. It makes the opposite result, and it hurts civilians. It's a form of economic warfare, so on moral grounds is wrong. And on the justification that it works to somehow uh, make the people topple the government, it's the opposite result in every case. Also, Nicolas Maduro being reelected as the head of his party. Um, and, and, you know, we already know he's the head of the party. It's interesting because the U.S., um, the neocons position is he's an evil dictator and he's abusing the people and the people don't really want him. Um, I saw, certainly haven't seen that. But at any rate, um, what is the importance of it? Is this any different, or anything no, abnormal that he's reelected re- re- as the president of the PSUV, his party? Or um, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I'll put it this way. The Communist Party of Venezuela has been heavily infiltrated by CIA assets. And they have recently successfully separated from the coalition uh, with the United Socialist Party. And there have been certain members of the United Socialist Party, some could argue infiltrators, that have left the party joined with the communists or have tried to uh, fight Maduro within their ranks. The fact that there was a recent unanimous vote within his party uh, for for supporting him and recognizing him as head of the party is very significant. That is showing um, that the socialists realize that you know he's the best leader for them, and that his determination in finding the sanctions, along with Alex Saab, has been able to garner her, garner him more support than ever. That's what I want to ask you about. I have heard from people who have been to Venezuela recently that the economic situation is improving. That the you know they're selling more oil and more goods. That with the help of Iran and from what I've heard, even Turkey, Russia, China, that the situation is improving. For as much you know the you know people from here would blame him and say. Oh, Oh, it's his fault. It's not just the sanctions. But it seems as though Maduro has ushered Venezuela through those sanctions. And it seems to me that the economics are on the upswing. Um, what are your thoughts? Yes, they are. Uh, things are starting to look like they did almost in the time of Chavez when uh, the country had a boost at some levels and some levels like they still need to bring in uh, more supplies uh, to their factories in order to export and also uh, to have the uh, materials that they need. Uh, to refine their crude oil because they do have the number one deposit of oil in the world, but it's crude oil, so it needs to be refined. What the United States used to do is buy it and refine it for the Venezuelans uh, through Citco and other means. But uh, Citco, which of course at one time was mostly owned by the by the Venezuelan government, the legitimate government, uh, and so they are in the process of, of re- trying to get those materials so that they can finally refine their oil uh, within their own nation and sell it to the world. Uh, but there's been cases where you know the U.S. was so desperate to try to stop the Venezuelans from building their own building their own economy again that they've uh, you know in an act of piracy in international seas 
of have, have uh, you know, basically kidnapped uh, Iranian vessels and then stole their oil and, and sold it. Uh, this is an act of piracy. Uh, there's no other way to put it uh, legally or, or politically. And these are acts that both Trump and Biden have done to try to thwart the efforts for one nation to buy another nation's oil. There's another uh, issue, accusations against Colombia. On the other hand, Maduro, he's criticized Colombian President Ivan Duque, whom he has accused of organizing plans to attack and kill Venezuelan police and military personnel. Uh, Ivan Duque leaves the presidency on August 7th. He is irritated and desperate and organizes plans to attack and kill Venezuelan policemen, Maduro warned. Go ahead and... Alex, and, and, and talk to us about what's going on between Venezuela and Colombia. Yeah, I mean, for example, some of the more extremist elements of the opposition have accused Maduro of being a secret Colombian. It's ridiculous. They've said, oh, he's not really a Venezuelan national because his mother was born on the on the border between Colombia and Venezuela. But Maduro, of course, all evidence shows, was born in Venezuela. It's almost like people were saying that Obama was born in, uh, in Kenya or Indonesia. But anyways, those same oppositionists later said, uh, how dare Maduro be anti-Colombian? How dare he close the border with Colombia, ignoring the narco war uh, that's on the frontier there? Uh, so that's the contradictions that we're talking about. Uh, you know, you have the DA, the CIA, and all these military bases in Aruba off the coast of Venezuela, and of course within Colombia itself. And you have presidential elections coming up, and of course the United States is backing this very unpopular uh, Duque. Um, and you know, so, so you know, even within the U.S.'s own statistics that they show. Uh, there's barely any drugs coming out of Venezuela, probably none. Um, and it, of course, overwhelmingly, it shows Colombia. So, isn't the DA supposed to be eradicating these drugs and not spreading it? Um, so that that shows the the corruption, and it shows how Duque is always working at the behest of Washington and not his own people. That results in his own people in mass rising up against him, and then him acting as a, as an oppressor. And of course, he uses the convenient scapegoat Maduro, you know, in the neighboring government. But it's his own people without any uh, interference from Maduro that are rising up against him. So just to quickly put a, a very simple label on this, is all of this activity really just Colombia as the U.S. proxy uh, in this issue and the U.S. using Colombia to attack Maduro? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's part of the reason why there's bases in Colombia just like there's bases in Latvia and Poland to antagonize Russia, there's bases in Aruba and Colombia to try to antagonize Venezuela. Stephen Donziger, um, uh, he was, you know, a, an attorney, and um, he was, I, many people, a human rights lawyer, many people feel he was unjustly um, prosecuted, and uh, he was kept uh, in unjust detention for 993 days, and he has been walked, uh, he's been set, he's finally, you know, came, uh, walked free. Uh, your thoughts on, on Stephen Donziger and that whole situation? Yes, just like Assange and Alex Saab, I have been advocating for the release of the political prisoner um, Stephen Donziger, who won a case against Chevron on behalf of the indigenous people of the Ecuadorian Amazon. Um, and as a result, he was either in prison, house arrest, or halfway house for over two years uh, for a contempt charge. That maximum penalty would have been six months, but it turned it over two years with how they drew out the, the case. Um, and it was a private case. It was not a public case. It basically was a, the first corporate trial in the United States. And it's just one more example about how those who rise up against the empire and its corporate interests suffer and become political prisoners as a result. And the fact that there wasn't more charges brought against them or that he wasn't held even longer shows the victory of the people, the people that were involved, the environmentalists, the socialists and others, the indigenous rights groups altogether 
uh, throughout the world had a pressure campaign, you know, that I took part in uh, to release Donziger, and that's finally been successful. You mentioned him as a political prisoner, and that prompts me to ask you to speak to the audience who listens to this show or people who hear what's going on in Venezuela, hear what's going on in Iran. Uh, We keep hearing about these fascist dictators and the authoritarians. What does the Stephen Donziger case say to the American people about the machinations that its own government will go through against its own citizens? Let's look at the charge, right? The one charge that they convicted Donziger of, that he became uh, debarred uh, as a lawyer, as an environmental lawyer as a result, and then, of course, persecuted under the law. The the only thing they convicted him of was contempt of court. What was the contempt over? They were trying to have him violate his uh, lawyer-client privilege. So all he did was appeal the decision that the judge said he had to turn over his computer, his his private correspondence with his clients. Legally, he's able to appeal that illegal decision. And that's why he was held in, in contempt. Really, it was an excuse they were trying to find in cahoots with Chevron, the Chevron prosecutor, the Chevron-funded judge, uh, to go after Donziger. And this is unprecedented. This has never happened in our history. So this shows the lawlessness of our empire that's in an evil alliance with the corporations. And additionally, this is, a, you know, I think a big part of this, this is um, the corporations demonstrating to people, to human rights lawyers, demonstrating to those who would try to hold them accountable. You know, I think it was a, a shot across the bow to let them know, you know, you may go to a country, you may win, but when you get back to the U.S. empire, we have full control and we'll make you pay. And Chevron never paid a dime of that money that the Ecuadorian court decided they have to pay. This is the arrogance of Chevron. They thought, okay, let's go down to this banana republic in Ecuador. We won't have the case in New York. We'll go down there, and we'll bribe them, and they'll and they'll do what we, what we want. But because the court was honest and sided with the indigenous people, Donziger was the one that had to suffer, just like Assange exposed war crimes. And he's the only one that they're trying to convict of, of crimes. None of those people that he exposed are, 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 being, uh, are being held uh, accountable, nor is Chevron. Alex Suarez, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate uh, that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Mint Press reports CIA files confirm Guantanamo Bay torture program's MKUltra roots. Kit Clarenberg investigates the troubling links between the CIA's clandestine Guantanamo Bay torture program and MKUltra-era mind control experiments. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former CIA counterterrorism officer, former senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, a law that was designed to punish spies. He served 23 months in prison as a result of his attempts to oppose the Bush administration's torture program. And he's the host of Sputnik's uh, The Backstory. John, and he's a very, very nice guy. John Giriaku, as always, welcome back. Thank you, sir. 
Clarenberg reports in March, the CIA declassified a 2008 CIA Inspector General report on the treatment of the CIA's treatment on 9-11 suspect uh, Amar al Baruchi at overseas black sites and Gitmo. The, he was the nephew of uh, purported 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He was arrested in Pakistan in 2003, accused of serving as a key lieutenant within al-Qaeda and its chief program, uh, I'm sorry, and its chief bagman, having provided pivotal financial and logistical support to the 9-11 hijackers. I don't know that any of that was ever proven. No, he's never actually been charged with a crime. But Amar al-Baluch, the CIA always believed that Amar al-Baluch was a very bad guy. He's Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's uh, nephew. He's also Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's son-in-law. And uh, he was a, a close um, assistant or deputy to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. But with that said, the man has never been charged with a crime. And what the uh, CIA uh, finally released, what has finally been declassified, is the fact that CIA interrogators illegally used him as um, as a, a punching bag where they a, actually a crash test dummy. A crash test dummy yeah. where they actually practiced um, abusing people on him. The, these interrogators took turns smashing Amar al Baluch's head against a wall. And then later on, when he was exhibiting uh, signs of a traumatic brain injury, finally underwent an MRI and was determined to be suffering from severe brain damage. And not just a concussion we're talking about here. Severe brain damage, which made him unable to participate in his own defense. Well, the Justice Department never said that the CIA could have its officers smash people's heads against walls uh, in order to practice torture. And that's exactly what they did. You know, and here's what's interesting. And I like to say, you know, a lot of times say the first thing that pops into my head you know, okay, and you say, yeah, and we can say this, that this person was a bad guy, right? But if I'm smashing people's heads into the wall for practice, right. then I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bad pretty, guy. I'm a pretty I'm bad a guy. Bad it gets guy. to the point That's where right. I become the monster that I'm hunting. And the only difference between me and the monster is that I have the, you know, it's like the winner writes history. And so I've done what the evil person has done, but I just get, I get to write the final after operation report. You well, know that, what, Garn- minute, well, that goes that goes back to a question that I asked you, I think, the last time mm-hmm. you were on, which was, did the quote unquote terrorists win? Right. Because we now have become the very monsters that we claim that we're fighting and our constitution means absolutely nothing and we traverse the world in we are the uh, authoritarians that uh, uh, that Joe Biden accuses us of fighting yeah you're exactly right you know just last week reuters released an article that was sort of buried in the in the um society culture section of the Reuters website about a former boss of mine at the CIA by the name of Alfreda Bukowski. We used to call Alfreda, behind her back, of course, uh, the redheaded devil. And she was the CIA officer on whom the Jessica Chastain character in Zero Dark Thirty was based. She was the godmother of the CIA's torture program. Well, now she's retired from the CIA and she opened up a little business from her home 
in which she does beauty consulting and life coaching. And the the and torture. Well, the Reuters <laughs> reporter asked her, "Well, what about torture? Right? You're gonna t- you're gonna talk about life coaching and tell people how to run their lives, and you were a, a torturer." And she said, "Torture worked, and I don't want to talk about it." And that was it. Torture worked, and I don't want to talk about it. Now we saw in this Mint Press News article that you're citing, uh, Garland. I mean, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Wilmer, directly from the CIA's uh, mouth. That officers were saying, oh, my God, this terror, this uh, sorry, this torture program is so awful. I can't be in the same room to witness it. It's so awful. And they would step outside while somebody else does the dirty work. Well, if you were so opposed to torture, why didn't you say something? Why didn't everybody say something? Because you're right. The bad guys won in this case because they dragged us down or or we allowed them to drag us down to what we always said was their level. And we did things that were at least as bad as what we were accusing them of doing. And one could argue worse because of the piousness and self-righteousness of us, because we are arguing that we're acting on behalf of good. They ain't arguing that they're acting on behalf of good. They got a bomb and I got to blow some people up. Hey, I'm Al-Qaeda. It's what I do. Now, I am the guy who's coming to save the world. And now we get this rhetoric about uh, authoritarian versus democracy and on and on. And here's the problem, I think, with it. When you look at the level of censorship, when you look at what's happening now in our society, it starts going after the bad guys over there, but it starts to leak out into the society until now it's the bad guys are here. You know, some Americans that well, could be we, we sharing have, we have Russian met the enemy misinformation. And the enemy is us. And that's exactly. the problem, uh, uh, John. Yeah. I think you're both right. And here we are all these years later. Oh, you know what? There was something else. I, I just reminded myself there was something else in this article that it, it's like it it seems to have missed everybody. When I first went public with the CIA's torture program, CIA Director George Tenet said, old news, we ended that program in 2005. Okay, well, now the CIA is saying, well, we don't have any comment because we ended that program in 2007. So which one was it? They were, didn't were, end it. were you lying? Yeah, it's still ongoing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, who do we believe? Because we know that they've already lied to us m- multiple times about this program. Talk about MK Ultra and what what, sure. what that means. MK Ultra was a was a top secret program initiated by the CIA in the early 1950s to experiment with mind control, and they they did it a lot of different ways, and some of it was just kooky, right? It was you know. They did experiments in astral projection and levitation, and they hired an army of psychics to do mind reading. The men who stared at goats, right? Yeah, (laughs) the men who stared at goats. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of it was just nutty. But the dangerous part of MKUltra was the experimentation that they did on people without their knowledge or consent Mm -hmm. using things like LSD or drug cocktails or um, uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms. You know, we know, for example, that at least one CIA officer who uh, didn't know that he was being experimented on committed suicide. And it's probably three 
not just one, but probably three who committed suicide. Uh, There have been credible allegations that the CIA used some of these drugs in in a village in France, uh, right, where they poisoned the village's bread for the day just to see how everybody would react. And everybody went nuts, right? They always... They always denied that they had spiked the bread with whatever LSD or whatever drug it was saying, oh, no, no, it was a, uh, some kind of bacteria got into the, into the bread that day and made everybody crazy. Well, the idea was that they, they were looking for a way to completely uh, erase a person's mind. And they, the way they came closest to doing this was through the use of um, – Oh, you know, when they put you in a tank, it's soundproof and uh, sensory Uh, deprivation tank, right? Sensory deprivation. So the idea was to wipe your mind clear of of everything or wipe it clean and then to to impose memories that actually never happened, right? So what they ended up doing is they just made everybody nuts. They, They were able to wipe their minds clean. But they couldn't impose these new memories. And instead, everybody just went crazy. So this continued until 1975 when it was finally exposed to the church committee and determined to be, you know, illegal and a human rights violation and unethical. And, you know, you got to stop it now. I think the film is Jason Bourne in the Bourne Identity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's And watch the Manchurian Candidate, you know, the original Manchurian Manchurian Candidate with uh, with, uh, Frank Sinatra. Uh Uh-huh. You know, this this craziness actually happened. And if I may, when I hear about innocent bio-research labs on the border of Russia, these kinds of things give me great pause. You know what I mean? When you look at this history and you say to yourself, you know, I don't know who's right or wrong, but... You say to yourself, well, if there's nothing wrong with them, why didn't you put them in Iowa? You know, the right. Iowa's a place. Yeah, they got lots of room in the middle of the, of the Mojave Desert. That would work. Why on the border of Russia? You know, and it's these kinds of things that make people lose trust for their government. And as you said, we're having this discussion, but it's not like you can't go online and find all of this stuff. Mon- right. Monsters do what monsters do. John, uh, you have a piece in Consortium News entitled Prison Food. Not for human consumption. Uh, You saw that label yourself when you were incarcerated and you call out a widespread human rights violation being committed in U.S. prisons. Yeah. Uh, My very first full day in prison um, was a Friday and somebody said, Friday is fish day. And I said, because I, what did I know about prison? I'm in there for one day. I said, oh, okay, I like fish. One of the Italians came up to me and said, don't eat this fish. (laughs) We call it sewer trout. And I said, oh, okay. So I went down to the cafeteria, and sure enough, these boxes were stacked up right behind the serving line. And on every box, it was marked Alaskan cod, product of China, which was kind of funny. And then underneath it said not for human consumption, feed use only. And I said, wait a minute, this is animal. It's animal grade food. It's not even human grade food. 
And he said, that's why we don't eat the, the fish. Well, it turned out that much of what we were fed was animal grade. There was one incident that I didn't put in this, in this article in Consortium News just because I've told the story so many times. I didn't want to bore people. But there was one incident where, uh, you know, every Wednesday was taco night. Believe me, this is not a taco you want to put in your mouth, right? So most of the time, I just skipped it and I cooked in my cell. Well, it turned out months later, uh, we everybody in the in the prison got a an email from the warden saying, "We're really sorry, but on Taco Night six weeks ago or whenever it was, um, we accidentally fed you dog food, and it wasn't our fault." But it it was mismarked at the plant, at the meat plant. It should have been marked dog food. Instead, it was marked ground beef, and we fed it to you. And in the end, this, this meat processing plant was fined $70,000, which went to the treasury, not to the prisoners. Okay, the shame of that story is not even necessarily that we were fed dog food. It was that we couldn't even tell the difference between the dog food and the taco, Right. Because that's how bad the food is. That's the the low quality, the animal grade quality of food that prisoners are fed. So I say in this article, this isn't just John complaining about prison food. There are active lawsuits in Oregon, in Arizona, in Minnesota, in Mississippi and Alabama, all over the country because prisoners are not treated as human beings. When you look at the contractors that provide either the food to the facility or do the turnkey, Mm -hmm. provide the food and prepare the food, and then you look at the contractors that have the contracts in a lot of our college campuses. You're absolutely right. Aramark is the worst offender. Sodexo. Sodexo is another one owned by Marriott. You know, you're exactly right. They're giving... Our, our children the same kind of food on college campuses across the country. And then, you know, when they get caught, and I, I did put this in the article, when they get caught and they're asked for a comment, they say, oh, we already apologized for that. Well, that, that's it. That's it. What's, what's the recourse for prisoners, right? It's the cost savings that yes. contracting out yes. and is, is much cheaper than having staff on board that prepares fresh daily and it's the 13th amendment exemption yes. prisoners are considered the same as That's slaves right, the right. same as slaves john kiriaku as always thank you so much for your time thank you sir great great work here we look forward to having you back i look forward to that thank you thank you folks you're listening to the critical hour on radio sputnik i'm wilmer leon i'm joined here by my co-host garland nixon there's more on the other side stay tuned
We are back, and you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Hill reports Title 42 looms over Biden meeting with Hispanic Democrats. President Biden's scheduled meeting with Hispanic Democrats touched on a series of issues affecting Latino communities, but kitchen table topics were overshadowed by the ongoing debate over the termination of Title 42. As the U.S. moves towards the 2022 midterm elections, are Democrats digging a deeper hole for themselves? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a community organizer, political analyst, consultant, and trainer, Maru Mora Villapando. As always, Maru, welcome back. Thank you for the invitation. So seven members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus met with Biden for over an hour at the White House yesterday, seeking to present a unified front on an issue that Republicans are exploiting to paint a picture of chaos at the border. Uh, first question for that I have, your sense of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus because within the African-American community, the Congressional Black Caucus is seen less than effective. I'll be very kind and put it that way. uh, How do you see the effectiveness of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus as my first question? Well, in this case, they came too late. Uh, They were not uh, to be seen in this conversation for a while. As a matter of fact, some of them had uh, not spoken against Title 42 for the longest time or even supported it. I mean, there's even Hispanic Democrats like Cuellar that, you know, it's a totally shame to to uh, immigrants that we consider ourselves Latinos um, that actually seem still in support of Title 42. So, yes, it's very limited what they can do. They seem to be running um, when it's really late. Um, and also, uh, they seem to uh, just respond to uh, what would be maybe some good photo op for them and not precisely uh, what is good for our communities, for our Latinx communities. Let me follow up on that. Knowing the size of the Latino community, if the Congressional Hispanic Caucus were to be more proactive, could they actually develop the leverage to walk into the White House and say, look, Mr. President, I got however many thousands of people. I've got, I'll just pick a number. I got a million people standing behind me. And if you don't go the way I want you to go, I'm going to get on the phone and I'm going to tell these people whatever I want them to know so that they don't vote for you. I mean, could they develop? Because that's one of the issues with the African-American community with the CBC. They don't have any leverage. That's right. It feels they, they, they don't because they don't really respond to what the communities are are trying to get done. Um, they do represent big uh, districts. Uh, some of them are, are quite progressive, but together as a whole, they they have not really leveraged the power that we give them. Um and so even even if they didn't leverage the, the communities they represent, they could at least even leverage the fact that it was Latinx communities, and in this case also black communities, that gave Biden the, the win, mm-hmm. right, of, mm-hmm. to be in the White House. And it seems they, they tend to forget those things. I don't know where they put them in these conversations. I mean, I read the letter that, that they brought to, to Biden, and it looks great, but it's just paper. And, and the fact that they're, um, they are not really leveraging their own party. You know, they're not leveraging our communities, but they're not leveraging their own party. Like I mentioned, there's still some Democrats, uh, Latinx, that are not on the same page as the rest of the Hispanic caucus. So that's why 
the Hispanic caucus should be bigger. And yet there's only a few members that if you think about how many Latinx are in Congress. You know, the other thing is, uh, I, I think looking forward, I recently saw an article that said amongst the Latino community, the approval for President Biden is down to 24 percent. And these are numbers that are unheard of, particularly, I mean, after Donald Trump, where, you know, there were considerable issues there. Do you think what what do you think are the reasons? I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but what do you think are the reasons for this uh, significant drop in support? Uh, for the president? Well, it's been clear that since Biden took office, he has not really paid attention to what our communities are uh, deciding to get done. Uh, for one, uh, immigration was not a big agenda for, for this administration. They really didn't push as we expected that they would push in Congress, right, to, to pass some sort of legislation in regards to immigration. Um, the they, they chose on what aspects of the uh, past um, regime would they take on and which ones they wouldn't. Um, so they, the Biden administration decided pieces that they, it looked good on them um, to stop from the past uh, years, yet they kept some of those. Um, and just the fact that they promised a lot and they still haven't seen those delivered, such as yeah, the shutdown of the detention centers, such as the, the delay on Title 42, as another example. Uh, just even what Kamala Harris did recently of uh, a working with big corporations to quote unquote save Central America, right? By allowing Nestle, uh, the Microsoft, and other big corporations to go into uh, these countries and quote unquote invest to supposedly stop migration, um, to tell us don't come. So I think that there's many examples in regards to immigration that have proven. To, to our Latinx communities that we're not only not a priority to this government, but they also think uh, that we don't have memory and that we don't vote and that we don't have the power that we exercised in the last elections. I took I, I heard I got a sense of sarcasm in your voice when you use the word invest. Uh, can you elaborate on why uh, Vice President Harris's uh, and the the Biden administration's policy of allowing these corporations to go in and invest wasn't investment. Well, it is an investment for for these companies, right? So it seems that the 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 U.S. government is doing the same as they have done in the past, which is to go into other 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 countries, destabilize their countries if they don't like their governments, um, and open the door for um, these big corporations to take over. So the investment is really for themselves. It's not for the, these, these countries. It's not to really change conditions and to stop uh, people from being forced to migrate. These investments are nothing but creating more profit for these big uh, corporations and also to take over even more so over our countries and our resources. Let's look at Nestle, what it's been doing with water, not only here in the U.S., but in other, in other parts of the continent. Um, making it private, privatizing it, keeping it for themselves, polluting our land and our rivers. Um, so this this approach to don't come is nothing but an excuse to continue permitting more uh, profiting from our our lands through these big corporations based in the U.S. So getting back to Title 42 specifically, the Hispanic Caucus made it clear that Title 42 is a public health emergency that was instituted under Trump. Is uh, what, what is the issue now? Why is this taking over the conversation above and beyond the practical kitchen table issues that a lot of people would think would, would be at the forefront? Well, I think that Title 42 has become another excuse to um, demonize 
immigrants. It works. You know, it, it definitely has worked for, for political purposes. But the other thing is that uh, it's been so politicized that it's even, even run by courts right now, by district courts. So basically what we're seeing with Title 42 is that we always talk about um, Congress or the same administration doing changes in immigration law, right? So the administration has uh, an opportunity to do administrative changes to what is existing law. And then Congress is supposed to do those uh, laws that will, you know, make changes in, in current law. Yet now, since the Trump administration, and even before, since the Obama administration, Republicans have actually utilized district courts to decide what happens on immigration. And that's why we've seen this, this uh, back and forth between different uh, district courts at different levels. And it's gonna get, now it's going to head out to the Supreme Court to be decided, can, can states then decide what supposedly is be, being decided by Congress in regards to federal immigration law? And can we still permit district courts, in this case, that happen to be uh, judges appointed by the Trump administration, deciding what the, the government, the U.S. government, in this case, the executive branch, should be able to decide? You know, it seems to me like while this is a, you know, a significant, a serious issue, um, a life and death issue for the people who are, you know, refugees, et cetera, and who are applying for refugee status and things of that nature, that it's been just a political football for both parties, whereas the Republicans will say, you know, oh, the undocumented people are going to take your jobs. And then the Democrats, they may send Kamala Harris to the border or they'll point the finger when Trump's in and say there's kids in cages, but they, they, they don't seem to really want to make any significant changes um, other than to try to um, to benefit politically from it, to get the votes from it, and to get some pokes at the at the um, at the Republicans. But I don't see any change of substance. Your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, that's why um, politicizing our lives uh, it's it's such a great gamble for them. You know, it does pay off. Um, it, it's so easy because most people in the United States are so foreign to the ideas of how immigration law works, how international human rights law works, and what are the reasons why people need to flee in the first place. So we're talking about um, people that are pushed throughout the continent to get all the way to the U.S. Let me tell you, I was in Mexico last month, and I learned that a lot of people that um, are remaining in Mexico are Haitians. Are, and these Haitians didn't actually come directly from Haiti. They've been throughout mm -hmm. many years in the continent mm -hmm. looking for survival. And they've been pushed because of not only the uh, local governments such as Argentina and Chile, et cetera, that are anti-black, but also because of the U.S. intervention in our countries, keep pushing people to migrate towards the global north. And so they end up, whether they like it or not, at the border with Mexico and the U.S. So it's not U.S. is not the, their first choice it end up being the last choice after a long, long years of migration. And what we have seen again and again is that this, this, the, the U.S. government, not only this administration, but throughout the history of the U.S., they pick and choose who they want and how they want them in the U.S. We see that the administration easily is able to, to admit Ukrainians. They have the power to do so. They have the capabilities to, to um, accept migrants from uh, Ukraine. Yet, 
they have refused to do so at the border with everybody else. I am very glad you said that. You were reading my mind because I wanted to make the point that we are hearing this Title 42 conversation in the context of Latinos, but there are Haitians involved, there are Cubans involved, there are a number of people uh, of color that coming from a number of countries, and it's also important for people to understand that you don't pick up and leave your home because you have nothing else better. To, well, maybe you do because you have nothing else better to do. Uh, you're forced out of your home looking for livelihood. You are not just picking up because you decide, oh, I, I hear the water's better. You're 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 basically being driven out of your home to another place because you are merely trying to exist. Yes, I mean the the government creates uh, the U.S. government has created the conditions. They created this crisis. What they call crisis, we're calling it. We're just responding to your manufacturing of this crisis. And so it is not up to people that are fleeing to decide what what should happen. It is the U.S. government that created the conditions uh, to force us to migrate, to also create the conditions to allow us to come into the country, because at the end of the day, the U.S. immigration law is supposed to allow that in the first place. Title for it is nothing but excuse of a racist uh, strategy to stop people from coming in the first place. Maru Mora Villapando, as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 